Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I am Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director. And today we are talking about the Foo Fighters, one of the most popular hard rock institutions that has been led for almost three decades by Dave Grohl, who is nothing if not the Ted Lasso of rock and roll. But here we are is the band's 11th record, uh, and it's the product of a lot of grief, not only after the death of the band's drummer, Taylor Hawkins, but for Dave Grohl's mother, Virginia, who passed away just a few months after Taylor did, to talk about the band's long journey to here, where they go next, what is going on with this record. I'm joined by the Woodward and Bernstein of Pitchfork, (laughs) senior writer Mark Hogan, and Associate News Director Evan Minsker, my dear friends, how are you guys doing today? I'm great, Jeremy. Happy to be here. Doing wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much. What is your most sort of formative memory of the Foo Fighters, Evan? Start with you. For me, the first Foo Fighters song or like era that I really engaged with more actively was the 2002 song All My Life. All night long, a dream of the day. Like, if you watch the video for All My Life, Dave Grohl is wearing a Ringer t-shirt, leather wristbands, and Chuck Taylors, which is what I was wearing in the year 2002. Like, he was, I had that uniform 100% down. (laughs) And that song, I just thought ripped because it's got that, like, intro where it's like the palm muted, like, and, like, he Mm -hmm. sings a little, like, oh, my life, I'm such a fast up. And then, like... You know, there's a big drop where like Taylor Hawkins comes in, and like I still think one of the better Foo Fighters singles ever. But that was the year for me. Like when I think of Foo Fighters, I think about Dave Grohl and myself in matching outfits, uh, just really <laughs> rocking out. Just right, Mark. How did Dave Grohl inform your sartorial choices, <laughs> if at I all? I could not pull off that fashion. I don't think um, circa 2014. There were some fans in Richmond, Virginia, who were trying to get the Foo Fighters back there for the first time in over 15 years. Mm. You know, that was kind of the era of, of, of crowdfunding stuff. So they started raising some money and um, you know, saying, hey, let's 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 see if we can get them to come to Richmond. And yeah, you know, yeah. lo and behold, like they actually said, hey, we'll do it after, the, you know, after the money was raised. And that just kind of speaks to, you know, Dave Grohl's whole status as the Ted Lasso of rock and roll, the, the <laughs> nicest guy in, in rock, as people have been saying for decades now. I think what you're speaking to is this overarching theme with the Foo Fighters is that they are so about their fans and so kind and magnanimous and generous to their fans 
that it is part and parcel what keeps them alive, what keeps their flame burning so bright in the culture of music and in the culture of rock and roll. Yeah. But in in 2011, I saw the Foo Fighters at Lollapalooza in Chicago and the skies opened up and there was like hurricane force winds. It poured out of the sky 10 minutes into the Foo Fighters set. When I thought the show was going to be canceled, they went into My Hero. I ran yes. through the mud and into the middle of the crowd because all I wanted to do was to scream the song that every cell of my body like had memorized from when I was a child. Yeah. And even just like talking about it right now, I'm getting like chills thinking about this experience and thinking about the kind of emotion that the Foo Fighters can create in the live setting, which is for sure the place where you need to experience this band. I feel like they've been underestimated since the beginning, you know, because you know, for that emotion, like he's always got, he's always had that kind of urgency to his vocals, that emotional edge and that, that ear uh-huh. for, for hooks. Totally. Luckily, this set is preserved on YouTube and I pulled it up yesterday. And, you know, one of the things that I was struck most by was watching Taylor Hawkins, who, yeah. you know, was the band's drummer for many, many years, um, joined after their second album. And he was the co-star of the Foo Fighters. Yeah, beloved. Like I, I feel like that was one of the things. I remember when Taylor Hawkins died, when the news came out that he died, I think it hit everybody like hard in this very specific way where it was shocking in the way that this guy who is just the, you know, talk about how Dave Grohl is like the nicest guy in rock. Like if there's a number two nicest guy <laughs> yes. in rock, it was right. probably Taylor Hawkins. Like he was seriously just this beam of light from behind the drum set just this incredible force obviously tributes just poured in and you know these concerts these tribute concerts that they did for him were these hugely emotional you know enormous events for like the whole world to kind of like mourn him in unison uh but yeah i mean that that felt like an enormous loss and obviously that is still informing this current record in a huge way yeah it echoed a very similar situation that Dave Grohl experienced back when he was the drummer of Nirvana. And Mark, I was kind of hoping that you could maybe take us through just sort of the origins of the Foo Fighters. Sure. Well, so, you know, Dave Grohl's first instrument really was guitar. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote songs for uh, a punk band called Scream out of D.C. They weren't doing as well as he hoped. He got invited to join this band called Nirvana that needed a full-time drummer He'd also written at least one song that was on a Nirvana B-side, I believe, Marigold. In the later days of Nirvana, Grohl was constantly writing and recording songs that would become Foo Fighters' debut, uh, just kind of demoing them. And, you know... Kurt Cobain died, you know, and that it just really reverberated across, you know, the, the whole of pop culture, but especially, you know, alternative rock and, and harder rock. And here was Grohl, you know, left to soldier on after that somehow. And I think he kind of even wrestled with whether to keep doing music and he decided to keep doing music. And he took these demos that he'd recorded and went to a proper studio, um, banged them out pretty quickly. I mean, I think he still sort of felt that the first Foo Fighters album was sort of demo like. 
He played almost all the instruments himself. You know, he handed out uh, cassettes of the album, I believe, to maybe a hundred friends or something. You know, everybody loved it. That's kind of what's, what's taken him to where we are today. Yeah, you know, after Nirvana obviously ended due to these heartbreaking circumstances, um, Kurt Cobain passes away. You know, he feels like he and Chris Novoselic are like the faces of this morning. Like they have to handle this public thing. So instead, what he does is he goes back to his childhood home in Virginia and he spends months with his mom and just, you know, mm-hmm. speaking to the fact that his mom just passed away um, and that also informs this new record. You know, uh, I watched this show that he did with her uh, from cradle to stage and he the thesis of the show is it is my mom's fault that <laughs> I am a rock star. <laughs> And yeah, it's because like as a high school teacher, she let him drop out of high school and tour with Scream. And then she encouraged him to join Nirvana and leave Scream. And then she helped him process the death of Kurt Cobain and then supported him endlessly as Foo Fighters became the biggest band in the world. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting to think about how loss really permeates this band who like their first album the single big me is literally the video is a fake mentos commercial yeah. and it's like yeah. it's like well i talk about it it's like this really happy sounding song and it happens just after the most tragic thing <laughs> that you can imagine happening to a person well i talked about it Dave has been basically inseparable from this idea of grief and from Foo Fighters, the self-titles to color in the shape, even like to there's nothing left to lose. Like you didn't read a Foo Fighters piece without there being some mention of Kurt Cobain. I mean, yeah, he said this quote, you know, it's like, would you ever want to relive the most painful moment of your life over and over again? And I think his answer to that question is obviously no, is what has led them to write these songs that are way more affirming and resolute than they are wallowing and grief-stricken. You know, people can contain multitudes. And if you want to talk about somebody who is like, I've just always been a pretty silly and goofy human being, (laughs) it's Dave Grohl. Uh He is always like making people laugh. This rehearsal video that they did to introduce their new drummer begins with a comedy sketch about like, (laughs) hey, are we going to hire one of these famous drummers? Teehee. And then, you know, they introduce their new drummer. So I think he has always Uh injected a good amount of light into the darkness. Like, I think he's always trying to make people feel like, hey, it's okay. This is a safe space. We're all going to have fun, (laughs) even though some bad things just happened, whether that's Kurt Cobain passing, Taylor Hawkins passing, whatever. It's like he's always trying to uplift people. And I think that that's part of why he's so beloved. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm. 
the issue with a lot of Dave Grohl's songs, respectfully, is that they're just sort of not about anything. Like there's right. there's very little specificity there. They all kind of take place against a green screen. <laughs> Going into this album, I, I know I was at least more interested than I had ever been. And I feel a way about that. There's a little bit of discomfort in knowing that perhaps this album, which again is written about a hugely traumatic moment in the lead singer's life, will contain some of that vitality and emotion that we loved after, you know, 20 some years after this first traumatic incident in his life. And I, and I do feel discomfort in that, you know, but how did you sort of feel yeah, I, I would say morbidly curious are the first yeah. words. Like, like I, I, you know, not to be crass, but I think that you've talked about like the last three albums. There's this kind of non-specificity to the yeah. to this rock and roll that is really kind of an industry of its own. You, he, they kind of just sort of keep churning out this sound that sort of belongs only to them. And a lot of times you can kind of just slot it out of an album and put it into a movie or the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show, in which they oh, appear yeah. playing a song from Medicine at Midnight. But that's the thing is like the Foo Fighters kind of just became this sort of like they are a rock band for everyone and the songs are for everyone. And, the, and so I was so curious about what will these songs tell me about what Dave is going through? So I listened more carefully, more eagerly, more times than I have any of the last few Foo Fighters albums. You know, yeah, maybe the, the lyrics are a little vague or whatever, but the emotions give people, you know, a, a license to cry in an arena or shout along or just, you know, really get into their feelings that, you know, most people just don't every day get that. Right. It's a safe space, you know, with with the Foo Fighters for people to, mm -hmm. to get into their feels. And uh, this is certainly a moment after, you know, losing his mother and, and the passing of Taylor where, you know, maybe they would get into that. You know, when I first hit play on this record and I heard the song Rescued, which is their first big single, my first thought was, oh, of course, of course, this is what this is going to sound like. <laughs> You know, I had possible thoughts of a flurry of, of like there was going to be some ambient Harold Budd, like Brian Eno, like yeah. Pianoscape. I had some thought that it was going to be this maybe like Daniel Lanois, this sort of like slow pedal steel. Then you listen to Rescued and you're like, oh, oh, there was this sense of both like relief yeah. and inevitability. Right. That like, oh, of course it was going to be like this. And in a sense, I am relieved because it is such like a 86 mile per hour fastball right down the plate Foo Fighters song. <laughs> it is about feeling things tonight, not tomorrow. And here we all are <laughs> together as one collectively grieving, processing and moving on. And it is just the perfect next chapter for this band. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that there was a comforting nature to the fact that these are just Foo Fighters songs. Um, yep. You know, I listened to it all the way through, I think, the first time. But I think I was very tempted to just go right to the 10 minute song and just be <laughs> mm -hmm. like, what is this going to be? Because a 10 minute long Foo Fighters song feels like a Foo Fighters song that is three to four times too long. <laughs> but... Mm -hmm. Um, with respect, like I, you click on it, you listen to this song and it starts out and you're like, 
I wonder if they're going to go wild with this one, you know, because he starts singing and it's this sort of like hushed, like half whisper sung David Gilmore style. <laughs> show me how to be, never show me how to say goodbye. Every page turns, it's a lesson learned in time. You know, it's like a prog song or like a weird yeah. Pete Townsend like narrative. You know, is this it's their take shine on much... you, Crazy Diamond? Right, right. you know, it, parts one through four. Exactly. Like it, it could be something like that. And really, what it is is a long Foo Fighters song. It, it like mm-hmm. it builds to where you expect it to build. <laughs> it like it rocks the way you expect it to rock. It's quiet mm-hmm. in the ways that you kind of expect it to be quiet. Honestly, I think one of the main things about this whole album that I came to appreciate that I should have expected, Jeremy, as you said, was that there's nothing inherently specific or personal. Like, there's no song that you can say this one's about Taylor Hawkins, this one's about his mom. Most of the time, you're having to jump to those conclusions yourself because there's not a song called Dear Taylor. There's there's nothing that direct. Sure. So this is an album for anyone who is going through something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mark, what did you think? I felt like our reviewer, Ian Cohen, in his review, he mentioned, you know, Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, which, you know, definitely is, is a relevant comparison um, because they had lost Sid Barrett. Um, he compared this album, the first eight tracks anyway, to Foo Fighters Back in Black, where, you know, ACDC was a band that had also gone through unspeakable tragedy. And then they came back doing yeah. just, hey, here's more of what we do best. Here's some here's some hard rock, you know. And Bon Scott died and was pre- replaced by Brian Johnson. And they sound exactly like they did before, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And so, you know, so that seems like sort of a template for, uh, you know, maybe unconscious. But I mean, obviously, Dave Grohl knows that music. And that's kind of what they're doing here is they're not wallowing in grief. I mean, I was drawn to the, the song that's got um, his, his daughter's vocals on it. Um, yeah, Violet Grohl. Yes, uh, "Show Me How" is the song. It's got Violet Grohl on it, and you know it kind of has again sort of that ethereal, you know, textured kind of guitar that um, sounds a bit like My Bloody Valentine, maybe more so than uh, that song "Ecstatic" from the debut album that has some shoegazy kind of influences to it as well. And you know, I mean, it's still in this arena rock setting, but you know, that was not necessarily a sound that I expected him to go to in 2023. And, you know, and his daughter, I think we all agree, like, she sounds great, right? Oh, yeah. He's been performing with her live a little bit here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that she has a really nice voice. It's like a very subtle performance from both of them on that song. Given that, you know, this is about his mom, her grandmother passing away, like in part, it's like the very last beat of the album on the song Rest, which is like the most mm. kind of quiet, pocketed, you know, for the beginning and very end <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah. Because in the middle, it's a Foo Fighters song. In the middle, right. it's a it, it rocks. It, there's a big mm-hmm. climax, and you're in the arena, right back with with them. And you know he's singing like the word. The song's called "Rest." He's singing the word "Rest" like full mm-hmm. belly. But at the beginning and end of the song, he's like quiet acoustic guitar singing the song that again feels like loose, loose enough to be about everyone. But then there's this last line where he sings. In the 
that's where he grew up. That's where he went and decamped when Kurt Cobain died with his mom. So I love that moment so much because it feels like the green screen gets ripped away. Yeah. And you're suddenly shooting like in an actual place, right? And that's his mother's name too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It's it's really nice. And it's it's nice that it happens in literally the very last moment of the album. Like mm-hmm. in some ways, it's the only place on the album that that could happen. This is going to sound weird. One of my favorite songs about death um, <laughs> is by Mount Erie, a.k.a. Phil Elvrum. And it's a song called Real Death off his uh, 2017 yeah, so album. So good. A Crow Looked at Me, which is not A Crow Left of the Murder, which I've mistakenly called it before, which is Incubus's like fifth album. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) A Crow Looked at Me, but he he opens the song Real Death um, with this couplet that that I've been thinking about a lot while listening to this Foo Fighters album. Death is real. Someone's there and then they're not. And it's not for singing about. It's not for making into art. And I love that line. I love that that's how this one artist processes grief, right? Where you're faced with something so big, so astronomical that you can't possibly imagine transmuting that into your work, into the into your vocation, to the thing that you've spent your entire life doing. And I think like one of the things that I like about that is it's very honest and it's talking about sort of like the process of it. And there are songwriters who I enjoy who write about their process of writing a song. But that is not Dave Grohl. That is not Foo Fighters. That is like not what you would ever get out of a Foo Fighters song. And for the last, you know, five Foo Fighters albums, I've been wondering to myself, it's like, what is the truth of this band? You know, as a critic, sometimes you you listen to music and you're like, well, is there what is the element of truth that's happening here? Mm -hmm. Or is there all like a bit of theater? Is there all just sort of, are you not really like interrogating or investigating what you're really feeling here? But I think what this album does for me is it kind of puts to rest me wanting anything more from the Foo Fighters other than what they've given us right now. Right. Yeah. Like, like, and I, and I think that that's that's the, the the biggest compliment that I could give about this band about this album is that like it feels so true to who they are and that is so difficult to do right like you, you may not enjoy the sound of this record but like you cannot deny that like this this feels like one of the most truthful statements from this band that they've ever given I totally agree with you and I also just feel like yeah if you want the Foo Fighters to be anything else I would just recommend listen to the other thing just the other thing is out there <laughs> right uh foo fighters are the foo fighters and they were going mm-hmm. to sound like the foo fighters forever yeah they're they're gonna make ninety thousand people in wembley cry yes like you know like that's that's what they can do that's the power of this band that was the power of taylor hawkins and his soul and spirit of this band I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea, at the center of a tennis triangle, and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. 
New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The interesting part about this album is that eventually, because this is the Fast and Furious franchise <laughs> of rock and roll, like these songs will just be on a spreadsheet somewhere. Right. And they will be like, okay, where are we putting rescued in the set list? Like, do we want to do the teacher in, in the set list? But just to be the the bad guy again and the, you know, harsh critic is like, I mean, there are songs that I love it. You're twirling your mustache. Yes, it's yes. terrible. He's a ha <laughs> the caddish villain over here. But like there are songs that maybe won't make it onto the you know long-term set list, of course, as there would be on any album. Oh. But there's yeah, you know, there's still sort of Absolutely. the you know obvious rhyme patterns and the and the this and that, like you know, that song Beyond Me. Oh you will. And he goes on to talk about being forever young and free. And, it's, you know, it's tough because you're dealing with, like, real-life tragedy, but that doesn't necessarily make the art, you know, it doesn't elevate the art uh, if it's just kind of clunky, you know. It doesn't excuse this lazy rhyme scheme. No, yeah. certainly not. Yeah. Yes, yes, I'll, I'll tie them to the railroad tracks. <laughs> well, what is, like, the lasting legacy of this band now? I mean, it's hard to say because they are still writing it, obviously. Like, they, I don't think... Um, they will ever stop. If the death of Taylor Hawkins won't stop them, I can't imagine whatever will. You know, I, I saw Dave Grohl perform like with a broken leg <laughs> right. for, for like half yeah. a tour when he sat like on a throne of guitars. Mm-hmm. Like it was, I mean, he won't quit. No, I mean, I, and I think when you talk about their legacy, it's like twofold, right? There's one, there's the fact that it's a never ending machine that mm-hmm. will just crank out as many songs as possible. But two, it's kind of what Mark was saying about the set list and how, you know, there are going to be songs that kind of like come out of the set list because they have so many guaranteed bangers for the set list from like earlier in their catalog. You know, really, I think they have a handful of songs like they put out, I think last year, a essential Foo Fighters record like that's Mm -hmm. their legacy in some ways Mm -hmm. is like this collection of all the songs they are guaranteed to play on tour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think their legacy is, I mean, they're the genial uh, torchbearers for everything that was good about alternative rock, you know, to the masses still, you know, to a wide audience. I mean, we can talk about these scrappier or these more more esoteric bands, but I mean, I can be, you know, I I can nitpick little things here and there, but, uh, you know. To reach the size of audience that they still reach, I mean, Grohl's always pushing forward these kinds of values that uh, existed, you know, in alternative culture uh, in the 90s, um, you know, like whether it was when the Foo Fighters would kind of, you know, prank the Westboro Baptist Church people who were, you know, who were, uh, you know, these, these terrible bigots. Um, in the 2010s when I was covering them at Spin, he, he <laughs> mm-hmm. performed alongside Bob Mould, you know, he's still mm-hmm. uh, honoring those kinds of groups, um, you know, he was still trying to push forward, you know, weird new music. I remember he was a big uh, advocate for that metal band Ghost, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. you know, with the masks and everything. And we could just list the cool things that Dave Grohl has done, like that, like having that drum battle with that, like, right. yeah, with Nandy Bushnell. Yeah, I, I, th- I think he played yeah, the fans yeah, garage like or something. I mean, you know, the dream of the 90s is alive uh, in, in Dave Grohl and, and in Foo Fighters, yeah, I would say. Yeah. I remember I wrote a story about like they were at some festival and like they brought out Rick Astley and the yes. Foo Fighters backed him up to play Never Gonna yep. Give You Up or whatever. And it's like, in addition to being, you know, the only rock band in the world, they are also now trying to be like, hey, you know what? Music in general, guys, let's go. Absolutely. You know, and and look, like there are a lot of questions that are left unanswered about Taylor Hawkins' death, about like the stresses that it put on him. And yes. why wasn't there more of a support structure to 
talk to him when he was having difficulty. Like, is going at 100 miles per hour constantly all the time, like, healthy for everybody, like, in this band? These are really difficult questions that I think that are are hard to answer on a Foo Fighters record and possibly impossible to answer on a Foo Fighters record. And I don't think that they would ever even try to. Right. So you're sort of left with all of this sort of the, the messier stuff about this to be kind of solved extra musically. Right. Right. And the Foo Fighters are, are just sort of like, look, that is like something we're dealing with, but that's not part of our, the truth of our music. Like our music is about community and like experiencing catharsis all together right. in these 60,000 seat arenas. Right. But that's the thing is like, I think that there's journalism to be had about this. And I think that that was never going to happen on a Foo Fighters album. Like you said, like, they have never tried it once. They won't start here. Like, why exactly. would they? Let's end on a high note. Um, you get to curate a Foo Fighters show. What's what's the one song you are making sure that's on there? Everlong. Everlong. Just the opening build gets me every time. The like the way that like the guitar kind of it's like there there's sort of these like long sustained chords and then it you know slowly gets to be like that like don't bump 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 like I when I think about the build just at the very beginning before he starts singing even i think i'm already in Mm -hmm. i can't listen to the first five seconds of everlong and then not listen to all of everlong at least one time the emotion of it too we we were talking earlier about that feeling of oh you know on the on the new album of you know we're all here tonight right now uh and then you know on this song it's things will stay this way forever and uh be this good forever and anyway you know yeah it makes me feel things It's a song about like living in a moment and wanting it to be there for us. Yeah, it's like it's it's another classic Foo Fighters like, hey, this song is don't worry about what it's actually about. Think about what it's mm-hmm. about for you right now. And, you know, uh, to that point, it's like if there's a Foo Fighters song that like, hey, what's this band about? How can I figure out how to get into the Foo Fighters? If this one isn't it, then you don't like the Foo right. Fighters, I think. Mark, Evan, thank you guys so much for talking about the Foo Fighters. This was really wonderful. Can everything ever feel this real forever, Jeremy? I had a wonderful time. Thanks for having me on the podcast. (laughs) There go my heroes. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. The Pitchwork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Catherine Finalosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. And I'm Jeremy Larson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.